Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably already gotten your first bug bite of the season, but itch is way more than skin deep. I thought that all it was telling us was how do we sense something outside of our body, but it's teaching us how we sense everything, not just outside of our body, not just the five senses, but a thousand senses. This week on Unexplainable, scientists have barely scratched the surface of itch. So how deep does it go? Listen to Unexplainable for new episodes every Wednesday. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. We tend to favor narcissists. If you look at who becomes a CEO and you compare multiple candidates, the more narcissistic candidate usually gets the job. In elections, too, the relatively higher score on narcissism in an election is more likely to get the votes. That's Adam Grant, an organizational psychologist and star professor at Warden Business School. He's also a New York Times bestselling author three times over. I speak with him about the qualities of a leader, the pitfalls of charisma, and what makes an organization run well. Whether that organization is a company, a district attorney's office, or say, a presidential administration. This has to be one of my favorite conversations of the past year, and I wanted to bring it back as the year ends. One note, we taped this originally in April, and Adam refers to John Kelly's challenges as chief of staff to Donald Trump. While Kelly's time in that role has come to an end, Adam's wisdom still stands. Maybe the next chief of staff will listen to his suggestions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. As the days get cold and the news heats up, I'm craving routine, sanity, and healthy cooking. Most nights, however, there's just no time to cook. So many indictments to read, so many court transcripts to pour over, it's tempting to get takeout or graze on junk food, but instead, you can knock out a delicious, healthy meal in just 20 minutes with the new quick and easy meal plan from Sunbasket. Sunbasket's meal kits always make it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. You get pre-measured, easy-to-prep ingredients and organic produce delivered to your door, now with 10- and 15-minute recipes. Dishes like super-fast Thai turkey lettuce cups or simple sausage tacos with bell pepper, chili salsa, and queso fresco. Sunbasket helps you eat your kind of healthy with options like paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, and more. Extra handy if you have relatives coming into town for the holidays who maybe eat differently than your normal routine. Go to sunbasket.com preet today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com preet to get $35 off your order today. Sunbasket.com slash Preet. A new Congress is taking over, and lawmakers promise a full slate of investigations into the Trump administration. Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign is ongoing. There are inquiries into Trump's businesses and his inaugural committee. The Trump Foundation has been shuttered in response to charges brought by the New York Attorney General. The news is not going to stop, nor are we. That's why we launched Cafe Insider, 
to help make sense of what's happening in the country. And we're bringing you more real-time, in-depth analysis in the form of new podcasts, a weekly newsletter, text alerts, and more. On the Cafe Insider podcast, Ann Milgram and I take stock of what's happening as we process the latest headlines. To listen to the Insider podcast and experience the rest of Cafe Insider, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Adam Grant, Professor Adam Grant, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, Preet. So you're a professor at... Guilty. ...at Wharton, at the University of Pennsylvania. And is it is it true that you're the best professor at Wharton? Oh, that would not be my place to judge, would it? <laughs> but you have gotten a lot of accolades from students as being a great teacher, so I'm not going to embarrass you with all of that. But it's an important thing, teaching, and I don't think we've spent enough time focusing on it. So you are a professor of what? I... Uh... I'm an organizational psychologist, so I teach management and leadership and collaboration and organizational behavior. Why were you drawn to psychology? You know, I think like most people, it's it's largely because I've had too many awkward interactions in my life. <laughs> you mean you mean when you were a kid? Yeah, growing up, you know, I was I was always the kid who got dropped by my friends and so, you know, at some point I got really curious about why, but I guess as I moved through every part of my life, there was a role that psychology played. So in high school and college, I was a springboard diver, and I was kind of riveted by the challenge of motivating myself to you know, to, to leap into the air and do somersaults and twists and know I was probably going to crash land. And then I, I had to talk other divers into doing that when I became a coach. And one of the things that was that was always striking to me as a diver was how many times I would go up in the air and think I'd done a pretty good dive. And then pop out of the water, and my coach would say, "Adam, that was bad." And and so does that go to that goes to lack of self awareness? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're when you're somersaulting and and twisting, it's really hard to know exactly where you are, and you know, to feel whether your entry is perfectly straight or you know whether you're a little bit turned sideways. And I think that's so true in in our work lives. You know that that sadly, uh, most of the time we can't see our performance objectively. And so, you know, I guess in the same way that I would sit down and, and watch videotapes of my dives, you know, to see what my coach was seeing, I think we, we need other people to hold up a mirror so that we can, we can see ourselves more clearly at work. But let's take a step back and, and have you explain to folks, aside from teaching at, at Wharton, you go into companies and into other organizations to help them. I, explain what that part of your life is like and, and, yeah. and why you do that. So I, I guess it, it ends up being, you know, sometimes research, sometimes consulting. So, you know, when I do a research project, there's, there's something that I want to understand. And so I might go into a, a company like Google and design an experiment to figure out, you know, can, can we make their jobs more meaningful and motivating? Or, you know, can we, we help make their teams more effective? And then, you know, in a, a consulting project, sometimes I'll, I'll get called by uh, ranging from, you know, the, the Gates Foundation to an investment bank. Uh, with the question about, you know, how do we do a better job attracting and retaining people or improving our culture? And so, you know, I often come in as, as sort of a, a, a generalist in the sense that I don't know anything about the industry, but I've spent a lot of time studying the, you know, the common challenges around people and culture. And so we try to bring evidence to the table to to solve the problem. So you're like a one-man McKinsey? Well, I'm I'm kind of the guy who gets hired after three consultants have been fired. <laughs> you're You're like the cleanup guy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, you know what? This is all failed. We might as well try an academic before we give up entirely. And and why do you do this kind of work? Do you, do you enjoy it in a different way from other work? 
Yeah, you know, I guess in some ways my job is to fix other people's jobs and, you know, broken organizations. And what I love about it is most of us spend the majority of our waking hours at work. And yet we end up stuck in, you know, in dysfunctional workplaces all the time. And so I feel like if there's something we can do to, you know, to drive change, it's a way to to have a positive impact on lots of people at once, as opposed to, you know, just trying to, to tackle one job at a time. I talk about culture and used to talk about culture in organizations all the time, but I don't have the benefit of a, of a degree in organizational psychology or in anything other than government and the law. Talk about what it means for there to be a good culture at a, at a place. Is that a real thing or is that something, you know, boneheads like me just like to say because it sounds nice? No, no, I think it's real. So, you know, when I, when I think about culture, I think about repeated patterns of behavior you know, that, that reveal norms and values. Uh, you know, I think one of, one of the shorthand ways to capture it is culture is what people do when, when no one's watching. Right. How does a bad culture form in the first place? Who's responsible for it? Well, oftentimes, not surprisingly, cultures turn out to be reflections of, you know, of the founder or of the, the leader who's in charge. So, you know, that, that happens in a few ways. One is that, you know, that, that founders and leaders very deliberately try to create certain cultures, Right, so they 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 create them through the behaviors they reward and the behaviors they punish, uh, but they also create them in ways that they're not aware of. Right, through you know actions that they take that that send clear messages. So, you know, I've I've worked with uh, with a whole bunch of organizations uh, that have had a similar challenge, which is uh, you walk in and there's this incredibly cutthroat, sort of ruthless set of of norms where people are constantly undermining each other, and you ask, well, well, how did the organization get this way? And the answer, more often than not, is the CEO basically promoted a bunch of people who maximize individual results and only measured, you know, what what does your personal performance look like? And there was no attention paid whatsoever to, gosh, what's what's the impact of your performance on other people? On the team, right? I, I remember reading a study once when I was thinking about how to promote people in my own office when I was a U.S. attorney and, and what kind of teams made sense. I remember thinking, you know, there are people who are geniuses and who can be amazing at their job, whether it's, you know, making widgets or giving a speech or trying a case. Um, and you think that they're indispensable. And so you can't do anything about them because they're the best person that you have, but they're otherwise toxic. And that you, you have to assess whether or not the entire team will do better without that superstar than it would do with the superstar, as opposed to thinking about retaining the superstar because that person is so productive. Does that make any sense? It does. And the reality is that, you know, that even stars are substitutable, right? It's just harder to measure the impact that, you know, that a toxic superstar has. You, do you measure you know, how people feel differently about their jobs as a function of that person being there? Maybe. But how do you quantify that? And that's something that, you know, that people have a hard time doing. And yet, if you look at the data, uh, it's, it's pretty clear one bad apple can spoil a barrel, but one good egg just does not make a dozen. Right. Well, that's <laughs> I'm going to write that down. You should put that. In, you should put that. <laughs> I don't one, know what that one, means, one but bowl. maybe you do. So, you know, if if we were to break down what what toxic behavior looks like, I've often studied this on an axis of of giving to taking. So, you know, the givers are people who are always asking, you know, what can I do for you? The takers have the opposite stance. It's all about what can you do for me. Is it sometimes possible to make the toxic person on a team? Better. We've been talking about how, you know, you just you throw away the bad apple or get rid of the bad apple, the toxic person, even if they're an overperformer individually. 
But can those people be reformed? Do you have any stories of success when you've gone into a company or an organization and helped the person who was just taking, taking, taking and, and ruining the overall productivity of a team and making that person see the light and become better? I, I don't think that's the, the most common reaction. Oh, really? So, you know, oftentimes <laughs> when, when people are, you know, when they've adopted a pattern of taking behavior, uh, it's either because, you know, they've decided that's the way to be effective. And, you know, then you have to work really hard to show them that, in fact, this behavior is undermining their success or they're just completely unaware of it. And then, you know, you have a real self-awareness challenge there. But what you're saying is kind of is, is mildly depressing. Are you saying that uh, that organizations of a certain size are always fixable because you can change the teams and you can alter structures and systems? But there are certain people sometimes at places who are not fixable and not redeemable and you got to get rid of them. Well, I think, look, if there <laughs> they're, are different kinds of takers, right? So, you know, there are narcissists. There are people who have gotten burned too many times and, you know, decided that they're going to have to be you know, more selfish in order to get ahead. And then there are psychopaths. <laughs> and I don't think that, you know, I don't think you're going to have a lot of luck reforming a psychopath. Right. Let's put it that way. But, you know, there, what, what, there what if the good... psychopath is the head of the organization? I would leave immediately. But but and what but what do you one. <laughs> but right but so you get hired let's say to take a look at a company um, or a government agency or a White House for example <laughs> and let's say the determination is hypothetically that the head of the organization who is not changeable because it's a you know it's a family company or you know they're they're elected or or some other uh, reason that they're installed for some uh, permanent period of time going forward. Can can you make those organizations better if the head of the organization is either a narcissist or a psychopath? I think you can. I don't think it's easy, right? So, I, you know, I, the, I I think the the depressing part of this story is that it is much easier to change culture by removing people than it is to change those people's behavior, especially if those are powerful people. What kind of leaders are the best uh, personality type? You know, have you discovered over time that there's a certain kind of uh, prototype? personality, introvert, extrovert, confident, uh, self-doubting to some degree, or does it vary? There are different kinds of superstar leaders depending on the place. Yeah, we, we've been studying leadership and personality for decades, and it's very rarely true that there's any one trait that defines a great leader. So there are traits that define bad leaders. Uh, and I think it's, you know, it's pretty easy to make the list of, you know, okay, it's, it's better to be a giver than a taker. Uh, you know, as as one example, uh, it's if you if you look at other dimensions of leadership, it's you know, it's better to be long term focused than short term focused. No surprise there. Uh, it's better to see a lot of potential in your people than you know, to, than to assume that they're stupid right. and incompetent. <laughs> you know, I think that one of the, the sort of <laughs> the big ahas that comes out of my field is, you know, great leadership is less about the traits you have, and it's much more about how you use them. Which is, you know, which is a question of adaptability and saying, all right, you know, I might want to show my emotions a little bit in one situation because I need other people to be concerned. Right. And I might want to, you know, sort of keep keep them in check in another situation because I need other people to be calm and focused. Yeah, I think there, there's a there's a fun way to look at this that that often sort of uh, that, that turns out to be revealing. We, we normally talk about optimism and pessimism uh, in this realm. And I, I want to modify that a little bit and say it's really useful to know if you're more of a strategic optimist or a defensive pessimist. I don't know. Which one am I? I don't know. We're going to find out. Okay. You ready? Yes, please. So 
Take me back to law school. Yes. And about a week before you had a major exam, why do we have, what why? was your emotional experience like? <laughs> well, I, I, th- I think I've evolved a lot since law school, but I'll go with the experiment. Uh, a week before the exam, the first major exam, I was probably uh, terrified, nervous, and wanted to be a successful lawyer, and I was thinking ahead to what career I might have, and so I thought this test was incredibly important. Grades, I felt, were more important in law school than in college. So I was a total stress case. Sweet. And now? Well, I don't take law. Well, I don't take legal exams anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I've been before a big trial or a big a big speech or a lecture. So now I feel like I've um, you know I've had a career, uh, got fired from only one job, and <laughs> and I no longer think that any particular thing I do uh, is would be ruinous. I feel a lot of stress about uh, new things. So you know, frankly, uh, I'll tell you, you know, I was a lawyer and still am a lawyer, and you know, things that are involved with the law, I feel great comfort in in attacking. But I started this podcast a few months ago, and I was very nervous about it, and didn't want it to fail, and it easily could have, I guess, because it was new and I'd never done it before. So new things like that, I probably yep. had a significant amount of of stress and worry that you'd fail at a whole at an entire enterprise. If you're talking about legal things, probably, you know, given that I've lived a long while and I'm 25 years out of law school, uh, I no longer thought that, you know, any particular thing would be my Waterloo. And so I, I probably was okay with it. And, you know, I developed some confidence in knowing that certain things I could do fairly well. So by the time, you know, I, I tried, you know, a number of cases, I was no longer terrified of trying a case. I felt I had that feeling that people say you're supposed to have, you know, the nervousness and, and a little bit of anxiety you have before a race knowing that you're a decent runner. Yep. Good. We can run with this. Okay. So, also, by the way, Also, is... I'm a Libra. All right, but I'm very curious. My parents are going to listen to this very carefully. <laughs> oh, perfect. So, uh, let's see. If you were a strategic optimist, far on that end of the, the spectrum, uh, about a week before you know, that, that big law school exam, you would be envisioning a perfect outcome. And then you know, that, that image would motivate you to study really hard, and you'd be excited about the test, and then you know, you'd ace it. Mm-hmm. If you're a defensive pessimist, which I think you're more of, at least, you know, <laughs> by default, about a week beforehand, you wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. The other thing I'll say is law is one of the only known professions where defensive pessimists consistently outperform strategic optimists. I, tell me if you agree with this. My my sense of, of really excellent trial lawyers is that, you know, they <laughs> it may look like they're playing to win. But a huge amount of their preparation was playing not to lose. Correct. No, I, I agree with that. Um, I agree with that. I want to talk about, you know, institutions and how leaders of institutions are supposed to get the best information to make decisions. We spend a lot of time in the show talking about a lot of things and how, you know, if you're a secretary of state or you're secretary of homeland security or a president, how you do the right thing and how you make sure that the information flow works in such a way that good decisions are made. And so... If you'd, if you'd indulge me in asking a question that I don't mean to be political in any way at all and a partisan in any way, but lots of folks you know, who are Republicans or Democrats observe you know, how our country is led and they look at a White House and there's lots of discussion about whether or not you know, John Kelly, uh, the chief of staff, is doing what he's supposed to be doing and is, is discipline being uh, enforced in the White House and at some periods people think it is and some people think it's not. And you know, famously, the Clinton White House was not particularly disciplined, and Leanne Panetta and I talked about that in the very first episode of this program. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit 
again, not about the politics of it, but how you imagine in a, in a, in a universe that is the, the West Wing of the White House, how things should be run, what your observations are based on your research and the data, and how people can do a good job serving the country in that place. Well, let, let's, let's start with the data. You know, what, one, of the, the, one of the best ways to guarantee that you make disastrous decisions is to, to end up in a, a pattern of groupthink. Of groupthink, where, yes. Yeah, where, you know, where, where basically you know, every, everybody is, is essentially marching in the same direction and nobody ever questions each other. If you look at what actually causes groupthink in, in four decades of, of careful research, uh, one is overconfidence. You know, when, when a group is too convinced that they already know the answer and they have all the right skills and perspectives they need to solve the problem. And then the other is, is basically politics, that people are worried about hurting their image, mm-hmm. and so they, they don't speak truth to power. So how do you speak truth to power? So, so, t- so, so let's say you were working in the White House. Not you, but you know, someone is working in the White House. Yeah. And you think that the country's on the wrong course on something, whether it's the border or whether it's Syria or whether it's trade or anything else. And in good faith, you think that the, both the country and the, and the president would be better served doing X instead of Y, given the environment that you imagine you know, exists and, give, and given your research and your experience, you're sort of a, a mid-level staffer at the White House. Let's say you're, more, you know, you're, you're a serious advisor. How are you supposed to get your point across in a way that doesn't get you fired, but that gets aired? Well, one of the most overlooked strategies for influence is asking for advice. So, you know, I think normally when we're trying to speak truth to power, we, we think the more forcefully we argue, the more we're going to be heard. No, that's off-putting. You know, as, as the head of an totally, institution, when right? someone People came to my office and said, Preet, if you don't, don't do that, that's crazy, that, that's idiotic, that's stupid, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my mind, that was, that's not effective, even yeah, if it's true. Who, who are you to tell me what to do? Right? Don't, don't, don't give me orders. I'm right. in charge here. Right. So, you know, very often asking questions works much better than giving answers. So what's an example of that in this context? So an, an example would be, let's, let's say I'm an advisor and, you know, I'm worried that, the, you know, there's a, a decision that's going in the wrong direction. What I might do is I'd go to John Kelly and I'd say, hey, you know, John, I'd, I'd really love your advice. Actually, I'd probably say, hey, General Kelly, I'd right. really love your <laughs> advice. So General Kelly, I really love your advice. You know, I, I think we need to be going in a, you know, a, a slightly different direction on trade. You know, I've got a bunch of data to back that up. And I know you're really good at getting hurt around here. What what recommendations do you have for me? And then, and then what should John Kelly do in that circumstance? So he gets the request to give advice, but knows that the principle is set on, you know, the principle of the organization, I guess in this case, the president, <laughs> yeah. is bent on doing a particular thing on trade, you know, tariffs in a, of, a, of a particular nature. And, and he thinks that's fine, but he wants, you know, other points of view to be aired. How does, how does John Kelly in a, in a well-functioning the uh, work environment, get that done? So I think he's he's got three options. The first one is to do the same thing and ask the president for advice. So, you know, I, I might go to, to President Trump and say, look, you know, hey, Mr. President, one of the things that I've always admired about you is your flexibility, you know, that you don't get locked into to one kind of decision. And, you know, I, th- I think there might be a, you know, a direction we ought to consider on trade that other people around the room, you know, might be a little more rigid on, you know, you're you're so open. How would you get them to be more open? That's based on flattery. The flattery plays a big role, I guess, in, in institute. <laughs> I had no idea. I, by the way, everyone has an ego, right? Um, yes, they yes they do. Uh, then the you know the second option would be to try to address it structurally. So you know, I what I would do is I would go into a meeting and say, look, lots of White Houses have been, you know, have been 
embarrassed and vilified for making decisions that seemed good in the moment, but, you know, with the benefit of history and hindsight, have been really bad. And we want to be so much smarter than those people. So, you know, let's let's learn from those mistakes. And one systematic mistake was there wasn't an honest broker. You know, people, this is uh, Roger Porter's research. Right. Uh, you know, that when when everybody who's the head of an agency has direct access to the president, it's really easy to to tilt the president's views. And what you want is a chief of staff or, you know, someone like that who sits above those people and communicates with a filter, uh, ideally, you know, with, with an eye toward what's good for the country as opposed to what's good for my agency or for my political agenda. And so, you know, let, let's let's create that structure to avoid, you know, what all those idiots have done before. <laughs> that that yeah that that would, I guess would be a second option. You'll be careful about that one, right? Very careful, right? And then the third would just be to think about norms, to say, hey, you know, Mr. President, people respect you enough in this White House that you know once they know your opinion, they're all going to defer to it. And you know, I I know that you 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 know how important it is to have a good, healthy debate and discussion about different options. So why don't we have the leader speak last? We'll go around the room. We'll get everybody's opinion. And then you can weigh in. And then, you know, you have all the knowledge on the table that you need to make a decision. Yeah, that, that's something that I learned late in the process. I think I read an article about somebody. And then I, I noticed it in my own office that if we were deciding to take a course of action on a case, and it was always a discussion. We sat around the coffee table in my office. Uh, and if I made known the way I was leaning, but I was totally open-minded, but I had to lean in a particular direction because- Everybody you know, else leans too. They start leaning, or they or they don't make the argument in the, in the way that they might have made it. And I saw this, you know, a couple of times, and it was very sort of jarring to me because you know I'm a pretty easygoing guy, but institutionally, you know, you're still the person in charge. And I would see a shift in in the expressions of people, and I would see they wouldn't advocate for the contrary view quite as sharply as they might have otherwise, because people. I mean, one time is okay to be on the other side of what the boss wants to do. The second time is not great. But nobody wants to be on the wrong side of the ultimate decision three, four, five times because then they think their advice is going to be, you know, uh, not respected because they always get it wrong when that was not at all what I was trying to get across or the culture I was trying to create. And then you learn over time to keep your mouth shut totally and hear from other people first. But it took, it took me several years to learn that. <laughs> it's a huge problem. And, you know, I think that I have watched so many leaders – you know, struggle with this in the sense that they think they're communicating openness and they don't realize that the more power you gain, the more worried everyone else is about, you know, about challenging you, criticizing you, disappointing you, or just, you know, kind of looking like they're not on the same page as you. So, so tell me, Adam, if I'm in a meeting and I want to, you know, and everyone's sort of agreeing that we should do A versus B, but I want to have the benefit of uh, the argument for the other side you know, what I would do sometimes is I would call on someone and I would say, why don't you make the case to do the opposite? Why is that not, why is that not effective? Well, look, I, I think that almost every leader I know says, all right, you know, we, we got to get the devil's advocate in here. And it's a great idea with one tiny wrinkle. It doesn't work. Uh, there, there's a psychologist at Berkeley, Charlotte Nemeth, who has spent her whole career studying this. And what she finds is that devil's advocates rarely convince anyone of anything. And more often, they actually backfire and they leave the group more convinced of the majority preference or where the consensus already was. And that, that happens for two reasons that we know of. One is that they don't argue forcefully enough. Their heart's not in it. Yeah, exactly. And they don't have enough time to prepare usually as well. 
And then the other side of it is the rest of the room knows that they're just playing a role. And so they don't take it seriously enough. It's like, hey, we checked that box. Now we can go right back to what we already wanted to do. Okay. So how do you solve that? How do you solve that, that problem? How do you get the devil's advocate position despite so the, 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 the solution that's, that's easy in theory, but hard in practice is to say, instead of assigning a devil's advocate, you want to unearth a devil's advocate. Find the genuine dissenter who actually holds a different viewpoint and give that person a voice and invite them into the conversation. And then when you hear that person's voice, you are significantly more likely to make a good decision and also to reach, reach a creative solution to the problem that hasn't yet been considered. In that regard, then, it would seem to me, just looking from the outside as a private citizen, that the White, the White House seems to have you know, genuine, genuine contrarian thinkers. And there are schools of thought that develop, right? Some people want to do X on trade. Some people want to do Y. Some people want to bomb Syria. Some people want to wait. So it, should we be, you know, happy that there are differences of opinion strongly held and likely not, you know, just made up, but but true contrarians in the decision-making process so that, you know, whether you like the decision or not, depending on where you think about, where, what you think about things in the, in, as a citizen, that there's meaningful debate going on in the White House? Yeah, we should be happy. But I think the the open question, at least for me, which maybe you can weigh in on, is how much are those contrarian opinions being heard? Right. And you know, how often are people biting their tongues? So let me, let me, put, let me put it this way. Is everything that you study deals with rationality and is backed up by data. And there are environments where you know some things are not going well, and that's why you get brought in. And then there are environments, not just people, but there are environments that are toxic. And everything that I read about this White House, and this may have been true of other White Houses too, of, of the other party, but everything you read about this White House is that it's toxic and that people are afraid of being fired at any moment or upsetting the president um, or being on the wrong side of an issue. Uh, and there's worries about leaks and that, that advice, honest advice being given is immediately going to find its way into the Washington Post or the New York Times. How do you deal with an environment and what's your advice to people in an environment that is so messed up by all reports. Well, if that if that's what it's like, I say good luck. <laughs> that's you can't I say mean, that. This, that's not what you're supposed to say. <laughs> no, I mean, look, this, this is our country. This is, this is our easy. country, Adam. This is not easy. Uh, you know, look, if if I if I had a solution, I would uh, I would certainly be offering it. Let's 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 start with this. So let, let's say, you know, there's, there's a sense that, you know, there are some senior people who are defensive, and this would not be the first White House where that would be the case, right? Right. So you could look at that as a, as a fixed personality trait, and then you're basically stuck with it. Or you could say, look, actually, what personality really is, is a set of tendencies. And, you know, we, we all have kind of a baseline that we orbit around, but we fluctuate from day to day. And they're, you know, even the most defensive person you know, there are moments when they're a little bit more open. Mm-hmm. And your job is to observe the fluctuations and figure out what the patterns are. So a little bit of the fault, if I may say, lies in the strategies that are being utilized by the people around the president, right? I mean, the president, look, he's the president. People have to get over it. And, you know, some people hope he goes and some people hope he gets reelected. Um, but he's the president. And if there are people of good faith in that environment... You take him as he comes, and he's not so changeable because he's lived a long life and he's been successful being the way he is. Yeah. Uh, but the people around him, as you say, have to find their opportunities to steer the decision-making in a particular direction. And so I guess, I guess my next question is, what are the personality traits of, of the people you want around a president like that? 
I mean, the actually, the, my favorite experiment on this showed that if you just say 19 words before criticizing someone, they become about 40% more open to, to the negative feedback. And the, the words are roughly, I'm giving you these comments because I have high expectations of you, and I'm confident you can reach them. Right. So you're saying John Kelly, in trying to suggest an alternative course on something, should should say to the president, I believe in you, Mr. President, I believe in the course you're setting for the country, and I have absolute faith that we're doing the right thing overall. But you know what? We shouldn't bomb Syria quite yet. And you think that has a greater likelihood of success? I think it's worth a try. I would probably phrase it a little bit differently. I'd probably articulate it by saying, you know, Mr. President, uh, you know, you've, you have a track record of making some really creative decisions. And, you know, you've, you've taken bold steps where other people were afraid to act. And I think that's a big factor behind your success. There are also times when, you know, that, that can be the wrong move. Right. Uh, you know, Trump stakes. And so, you know, let's, let's take a step back and figure out, is this decision more like one of the good ones or one of the bad ones? Right. I mean, the, the problem here, it seems to me, uh, that's, that's hard to get around, is that you have a guy who became president of the United States who was told repeatedly, you can't win if you act the way you do, if you tweet the way you do, if you treat people the way you do, and they were all wrong, and he won. And so, you know, he's lived a long life, uh, and he got to where he got by being the way he is. And so when rational, reasonable people, generals or otherwise, or subject matter experts, tell him things that he doesn't like and say, you can't do X or Y, he thinks to himself, and it's not, it's not crazy to me what his mental process must be. He thinks to himself, you're just like those other people who told me not to do this, yeah. and you were all wrong. And so I know better, and I'm the president, and so go to hell. Yeah, I think, you know, react, I think, react to that because it's not. Well, there are a couple of ways that that resonates. The first one is that that's actually how learning works, right? So if you go all the way back to, to Pavlovian conditioning, uh, you know, remember Pavlov training his dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell? We're all, we're all susceptible to classical conditioning. So if, you know, if the president repeatedly is told you're not going to win or you are wrong and he rejects that, that advice or viewpoint, and then ends up learning that he's correct over and over again, pretty soon he's conditioned to believe that whenever somebody says this is a bad idea, it's actually a good idea. Right. So how do you fix that? Actually, before we talk about how to fix it, there's, there's another piece of it, which is uh, our brains end up filtering information, you know, kind of censoring the bad stuff the same way that a dictator would censor the press. And so over time, right, you, what you can do is you end up in a confirmation bias mode of remembering the times when people said you were wrong and you were right and forgetting the times when they said you were wrong and you were actually wrong. Oh, I totally do that. We all do that. Are people changeable? I, I just took for granted this idea that if you're a 70-something-year-old who got to where you got as the president, that you, you know the people around you have to adapt to that person. Have you seen experiences in your life where people actually are able to be changed, whether it's at the head of a company or the, or the head of the government? Yeah, I think they're few and far between, right? So we change relative to our baseline. But there, you know, there are some pretty, pretty radical examples of people changing in pretty radical ways. So one of the ones uh, that comes to mind from history is a guy named, uh, named Alfred, who one day woke up and saw his own obituary in the newspaper. And it said, the merchant of death is dead. Uh, so he made dynamite. And his obituary mm -hmm. said they called him the merchant of death. 
Ah. And he he had originally made it to try to make you know mining more efficient and maybe a little safer, and you know it had of course this this destructive effect in a lot of ways. And I I think it was his brother who had died, and the newspaper mixed him up, and it got printed uh, across you know across a, I think a whole country, maybe even across an ocean. And so he had a chance to to look at his legacy, and he didn't like what he saw. And so uh, Alfred devoted the rest of his life to trying to do good. Uh, his last name was Nobel. He created the Nobel Prizes. Oh, that guy. Yeah, that guy. You know, too often we're, we're looking at our lives through a microscope. And what we actually need is a wide-angle lens where we can zoom out and ask, you know, what is my legacy? What is the impact of this behavior on my reputation? And, you know, sometimes with the right information, people do not like the person that's staring them in the mirror, and they decide they want to change. Right. You travel far and wide. You talk to a lot of people. Um, from time to time, you talk to me. What are what are some ideas, or what's an idea that has uh, you excited for the future, and that might make people's lives better? <laughs> oh, there's so many. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one I'm excited about right now that's relevant to our conversation. Okay. So uh, there, there's some really cool research that's been done on American companies and also Chinese companies, looking at the most effective leaders. And I was thrilled to see that if you look at narcissistic leaders versus humble leaders, the humble leaders are more effective. Uh, They're rated as better, their employees are more productive and innovative as well. And, you know, when you think about what what a humble leader brings to the table, uh, it's, you know, willing to, to admit when you're wrong, you know, trying to learn from your mistakes, always wanting to improve. That's good for you as a leader. And it's also motivating and contagious to your people who tend right. to adopt some of those qualities. So that, that, that's all good news. There's also um, the, the other... Was that su- I'm sorry, was that surprising? Like, you, you sound very elated. Yeah, it was surprising. That, that was a result. Why, why would that be so surprising? It was surprising because, you know, we, we tend to favor narcissists. If you look at, you know, who, who becomes a CEO and you compare multiple candidates, the more narcissistic candidate usually gets the job. And we see it in elections too. The relatively higher score on narcissism in an election is more likely to get the votes. Does narcissism bear any relationship to what people call charisma or not? Yeah, it can. So if you look at uh, studies of American presidents throughout history, the narcissists do tend to be more charismatic. But is charisma overrated as a quality in leadership? That I mean, that there are very few things as a social scientist that I would say for sure, but that's a for sure. So why are we so focused on charisma? Because people, I guess the, the storybook says you have a charismatic leader in civil rights or in industry or, or something else, or in politics, and they inspire people through their charisma and charm and oratory and passion, and so people follow them. Yeah. And that's how you get something done. Uh, is that overstated? Well, I think, look, that, that is, you just beautifully summarized what we know about the benefits of charisma, which is it's inspiring. People are more willing to follow you. They're more motivated to follow you. But good leadership is about more than just inspiration. Right. Right. You have to execute. Yeah. It's about strategy. It's about execution. It's about good decision making. It's about resolving conflicts. And very often charisma becomes a crutch that when leaders are highly charismatic, they're actually less likely to develop good operational skills and, you know, really focus on the details. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it sort of impedes their development, which is, which is a problem if you have to work directly with these people. Right. Well, there's also in politics, I think there's a danger of charisma. Because there's a there's a sometimes a fine line between uh, tremendous charisma and demagoguery, and so people can be led and can be manipulated 
by the charismatic leader or the cult of personality, which is something we always have to be worried about. And maybe it's different in business, but... No, it's not actually. There's, uh, there's research on two kinds of charisma. So there's, there's socialized charisma, which is about, hey, I'm going to get you inspired about the mission of this organization. And then there's personalized charisma, which is I'm going to get you inspired to be loyal to me. And the, right. the former is powerful and the latter is incredibly dangerous. Professor, I could talk to you for many more hours. I'd, like to, I'd love to have you back because uh, I need a lot more examination <laughs> of myself by someone as uh, smart uh, and I will say appropriately charismatic as you. Really a pleasure having you on the show. Delighted so to be here, Preet. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, organizational psychologist and best-selling author, Adam Grant. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.